We are continuing in our series in Nehemiah. We are in Nehemiah 2. If you wish to open a Bible or your electronic device that might have a Bible app. (coughs) It seems that truck driver Larry Walters had been sitting around doing nothing week after week until boredom got the best of him. That was in the summer of 1982. In a fit of exasperation, he decided enough was enough. And so he rigged up 42 helium-filled weather balloons to a Sears lawn chair and proceeded to lift off from San Pedro. Armed with a pellet gun to shoot out some balloons when he decided to descend, he was shocked to see that he had reached an altitude of 16,000 feet in just a matter of minutes. I understand he wasn't wearing a parachute. This was utter craziness. Some pilots reported to perplexed air traffic controllers seeing, quote, some guy in a lawn chair floating around in the air. (laughs) After a time, Mr. Walters did have enough sense to start shooting balloons, which enabled him to land safely in Long Beach some 45 minutes later. That bizarre stunt earned him a Timex ad and even a guest spot on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. He also earned the nickname Lawn Chair Larry. (laughs) Ultimately, Mr. Waters quit his job to give motivational speeches. He was often asked the reason he ever did such a strange thing. His answer was the same each time. People ask me if I had a death wish. I tell them no. It was something I had to do. And listen to this. I couldn't just sit there. I couldn't just sit there. It might seem at this juncture Nehemiah was just sitting there, but he wasn't. Nehemiah was in the palace at Shushan waiting on God. Nehemiah had heard about the destruction in Jerusalem from his brother and some friends who had just returned from there. He had waited four months since he first heard that his people in Jerusalem were victims of harassment and serious anti-Semitism, and that the protective wall and gates around Jerusalem had been torn down and burned to the ground. Artaxerxes was the head of the media Persian Empire, and he was the only person that could give Nehemiah permission to do something about that situation. Nehemiah was employed for Artaxerxes as his cupbearer, So he did have immediate access to Artaxerxes, but for some reason, Nehemiah still hadn't spoken to him about this problem. Nehemiah was just waiting and mourning and fasting and praying. Notice that although God answers prayer, sometimes he wants us to wait and wait and wait for his answer. Nehemiah understood that he might have to wait, so he continued to pray and wait on God. This wasn't procrastination on Nehemiah's part. Nehemiah wasn't just putting off this conversation. Instead, he was waiting on God to act and open up a more advantageous time for him to speak to Artaxerxes about this problem. The reason is, is because timing is critical. Timing is critical. The longer I am a Christian and the older I am, the more I've learned to trust God and His timetable and not mine. Please notice just how God answers prayer in relation to timing. One, sometimes God's answer is immediate or even sooner. Sometimes His answer is instantaneous. Matthew 6 verse 8, Jesus said to His disciples, For your Father, meaning God, our Father in heaven, knows the things you have need of before before you ask Him. Since God is already aware of what we need before we are in need, since He knows what we're going to ask for even before we ask Him for it, then if He chooses to do so, He can give us an answer even before we ask. Since God knows we're going to ask, and He knows what we're going to ask for, God can then start initiating His answer even before we start praying. Isaiah 65, verse 24. 
It shall come to pass that before they call, before they call, meaning before they pray, call on God through prayer, I, God, will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. In essence, God is able to set his answer in motion even before someone can ask so that we might ask for something and then in the next instant, God gives us the answer we ask for. The reason God sometimes does that is because some situations we find ourselves in necessitate an on-the-spot, no hesitation, no procrastination, an immediate answer from God. And if we don't get an immediate answer, then we're in serious trouble. Sort of like the barrel of fish um, at a market that had this sign on the front. Please deliver in three days, or else don't bother. There are just some things that require immediate attention from God. This isn't on the screen, but one example was Simon Peter. In the middle of the night, Simon Peter and the other disciples were on a boat during a, a fierce storm. Simon Peter had started to walk on the water during that storm and darkness, walk on the water to Jesus. That's Matthew 14, verse 29. Verse 30 reads, But when he, Peter, saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. That's praying. That is a three-word desperate prayer. Lord, save me. Peter was sinking and about to drown. Verse 31. And immediately, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. That is an example of an immediate and instantaneous response to praying. If Jesus hadn't done that, Peter probably would have drowned. Second, sometimes God's answer is postponed for a period of time. Sometimes God's answer is postponed for some period of time. Luke 1, uh, Luke was a medical doctor. He authored the Gospel of Luke and the sequel to Luke, Acts. And he described a situation where a certain Jewish priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth had been unable to have children and had been praying for a child and had been praying for some time. God had postponed his answer, though, and didn't give them a child until both of them were past normal childbearing age. God then gave Elizabeth a son she named John. He became known as John the Baptizer. John would act as the advance man for Jesus. Some of God's answers are postponed, as in this case for Jeremiah. Jeremiah was waiting for God to act in response to his asking, since it was apparent that God was postponing his answer for a protracted period of time. This particular answer had been set on the shelf for more than four months, as we said earlier. Remember, there are two basic sides to someone's praying, a divine side and a human side. There is God's side, and then there is man's side. And there are four progressive stages on the human side. I actually shared this at one of our recent prayer meetings. Stage one is admission. Stage one is admission. This is a sincere and conscious admission. Dear God, I cannot do this. God, I need you to help me. Admission. Stage two is submission. Submission. This is where our will is an absolute and total submission to God's will. There's this attitude, God, this is what I want. But more than I want what I want, I want what you want for me. I'm submitting my will to your will. Stage three is transmission. This transmission is the act of asking for something from God. This is the actual prayer itself. And stage four is intermission. Intermission. This intermission is the time period from the moment we ask until the moment God answers. That time period from the moment we ask until God answers is intermission. 
That intermission could be in seconds. In Simon Peter's case, it was a nanosecond. It could be in minutes, hours, months, or decades. This intermission stage is where Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was waiting on God to act. And please notice that he's been, as he's been waiting, he's also been planning. Nehemiah was a master planner, as we're going to see. And this passage gives us some strategic insight into just how Nehemiah planned. There are seven things Nehemiah did to plan this gigantic engineering-construction project at Jerusalem. The first three items we're addressing this morning, and then the remaining four we're saving until next time. John Maxwell said, he is a prolific author about leadership, he's a uh, committed Christian, former pastor, said planning is not an attempt to foretell the future. Planning is an attempt to regulate and shape the future and to prepare to negotiate unforeseen circumstances to our advantage. Now, this is how Nehemiah planned. But first, before we get into how Nehemiah planned, let me mention three reasons why we should plan. One, because God plans. God himself plans. Creation, and we are in a location where God's creation is so visible to us. Creation required the most precise planning imaginable, contrary to humanistic evolutionary theories that are dependent on random chance instead of intelligent divine design. Since I just mentioned evolution, question, how many evolutionists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is only one, but it takes eight billion years. If you, should, if you can't get that, you, yeah. We have a class for you. It's, uh, and remember the ancient portable worship center called the Tabernacle? Uh, the Israelites would set up and tear down, set up and tear down uh, throughout the wilderness. Um, the tabernacle was another case that required specific detailed planning, uh, meticulous planning. And after it was finished, and after it was furnished, it was then so perfect that no alterations had to be made to it. Understand that anything God does is first planned. God doesn't just wing it and shoot from the hip and do something off the cuff. No, God is the ultimate master planner. Second reason we should plan is because we are expected to plan. Planning is expected from us. Luke 14, verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? No one should attempt to construct a tower or some sizable structure until he first designs the project and then does a cost analysis. That is expected. On our recent trip east, we toured the Ark Encounter uh, near Williamstown, Kentucky. The Ark's slogan is, it's bigger than imagination. And it is. Uh, it's 510 feet in length. It is massive. Um, that is me standing next to the door of the ark. That's a sizable door. Uh, it's, it's amazing structure. Before we actually went onto the ark, we went into this large uh, room and watched an incredible 40-minute film that described how the ark was designed and constructed. And one of the principal designers was a Mr. Patrick Marsh who had designed one of the principal designers behind Universal Studios in Florida. I mean, the professionalism throughout the Ark is amazing. The website, RoadsideAmerica.com, gave the Ark Encounter its highest rating and said, quote, The Ark is an attraction that should be visited. If only, if only because it's unlikely that you'll ever visit anything else like it. I agree. It's a definite bucket list item. And uh, we checked it off. The point is, the Ark wouldn't exist if a team of extremely gifted people hadn't planned that project. Planning is expected because things that are significant don't just happen. 
Third, we should plan because planning is good time management. Ephesians 5 verse 16 mentions redeeming the time. The actual word redeem means to repurchase something, to buy something back. The intention of this phrase, redeeming the time, is that we are to be so strategic about using our time that it in essence enables us to buy back some of our time, to reuse some of our time, to have double usage of our time. Sometimes that means multitasking, doing more than one thing at a time is redeeming the time. Not planning causes us to have to redo what we did which would not have happened if we had planned at the beginning. And doing something twice because we didn't plan to do it right the first time actually costs us twice as much time. Redeeming the time means we are to plan. These three statements are just some of the reasons we should plan. Now, notice the first of the things that Nehemiah did as a part of his planning. Statement one, Nehemiah thought through, thought this situation through. He thought through this thing. Verse 1, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, altogether Nehemiah had waited on God, remember, from the month of Keslav to Nisan, meaning that he had been waiting on God from December through April. During those four plus months, he had been praying and planning. The reason we know he had been planning throughout that entire four-month period is because he was fully prepared to answer Artaxerxes' questions. He didn't just come up with something off the top of his head in his meeting with Artaxerxes. Nehemiah had been thinking this thing through over and over and over and over. He was prepared to give an immediate, intelligent response to Artaxerxes. Dr. Howard Hendricks, one of my favorite communicators, said, nothing is more profitable than serious thinking and nothing is more demanding. That is profound. Notice the principle. Successful people make time for think time. People that are successful make time for think time. I am finding that it is more and more important for me to set aside time to be alone, and that is often difficult. Set aside time to be alone apart from distractions and interruptions so that I can think. That means no texting, I get dozens of texts each day, no phone calls, no emails, dozens of each emails each day, no internet searching, doing research, no knocks on the office door, none of that. It's difficult, but I'm, I'm trying to set aside more time alone, apart from interruptions, apart from distractions, just so I can think. I need time to think. And if the subject matter under consideration is extremely complicated and or controversial, then multiple brains are better than one, especially mine. I am not omniscient, I am not all knowledgeable, and I am not the village wise man. We all need the use of minds other than our own, so we should ask others for counsel, and we should encourage brainstorming. I had a call yesterday, unexpected, from a long, long time pastor friend. He has a situation in his congregation, and he was very serious. I could tell right up front. First thing he said, he said, do you have 15 minutes? I said, well, I, I do, but I charge by the hour. And um, he didn't, no humor, none, no response. I go, okay, this is serious. Um, and it wasn't 15 minutes, it never is. When someone tells you 15 minutes, no, no. Um, and he shared this situation, and he goes, I, I need to know, what would you do? And so I gave him my very honest um, opinion. I hope and pray that he does accept my counsel because I think it's a very, very serious situation. But I've done that to other men. And other men do that to me. We, we need others' input because we're only capable of so much on our own. At some point, all of us have been guilty of not thinking through things as we ought to. For instance, impulse spending. 
Impulse spending is a case of not thinking through a purchase. We were just impulsive and purchased that something. More than one husband has been sent out for a gallon of milk and some lunch meat, and after two hours comes home pulling a boat and motor. That has happened. <laughs> That's impulsive purchasing. Some people don't think through marriage and end up getting out not long after getting in. Some people don't think through the decision to attend college and in not doing so change majors four or five times, accumulate dozens of unnecessary credits, massive debt, and sometimes never do actually graduate. Hope and I probably never thought through all the ramifications of having three children either. But God blessed us in spite of ourselves and we are proud of our three sons. And we're mostly proud of our grandchildren. Um, That's just the way it works. Anyway, evangelical Christians hold to a strong insistence on a God that is sovereign. Sovereign means in control. God is sovereign means God is in control of all that happens in this universe. God either causes something to happen in a direct sense or else God permits something to happen in an indirect sense. In any case, God is in control. So we aren't proponents of luck. But someone has created a more acceptable definition of luck as, quote, where someone's preparation meets opportunities. Someone's preparation meets opportunities. In this case, Nehemiah has prepared himself for these opportunities through thinking through this entire situation before he mentions anything to Artaxerxes. The second thing Nehemiah did was, Nehemiah moved ahead, he continued on in his planning in spite of his apprehension, in spite of his apprehension. Verse 1 continues, In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. That's an interesting statement. I had never been sad in his presence before. Artaxerxes and his wife, the queen, were hosting a banquet, and Nehemiah was going about his normal duties as uh, the cupbearer, and as the cupbearer, he served them wine. But it was apparent in doing so that Nehemiah was grieving. He was sad. He was so burdened about the conditions of his people and about the debris and rubble and remains of the Jerusalem wall that his sadness was apparent. This verse states that Nehemiah had never been sad in the presence of Artaxerxes before, and that was significant. Verse 2, Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. This man was perceptive. He sensed that, no, he's not suffering from an illness or disease. He is uh, upset. His heart is hurting. Then notice Nehemiah's response to Artaxerxes. So I became dreadfully afraid. Once he heard that, he became dreadfully afraid. Artaxerxes was aware of Nehemiah's sadness. He realized that it wasn't because Nehemiah was suffering from some ailment, illness, It was apparent that this wasn't a physiological problem, but that this was an emotional problem. Nehemiah was depressed. He was suffering from manic depression. He was grieving. He was extremely sad. In a figurative sense, his heart was broken in pieces. So Artaxerxes, sensing this, wanted to know and understand the reason for his cupbearer's sadness. Notice how Nehemiah reacted to Artaxerxes. He said, so I became dreadfully afraid. Nehemiah was petrified. Nehemiah was terrified and literally scared to death. Nehemiah understood that Artaxerxes was now fully aware of his intense sadness. He was aware. He was afraid. And that was a potentially dangerous situation. Was there some reason Nehemiah should be afraid? Because Artaxerxes was now aware of his sadness? Yes, there was. There was a definite reason. Because to be sad in front of the king constituted a serious offense. That meant that any subject that presented himself to Artaxerxes, 
in a state of sadness or depression could be severely punished or even executed. Because Artaxerxes didn't like people raining on his parade. I mean, he's having a good day and someone sad and depressed comes in. You know, that's, that's not good. If someone came to see Artaxerxes, he was expected to smile and have a cheer, cheerful countenance. Even if he had to fake it, he had to do that because the king didn't want sadness in his presence. That's the reason Nehemiah was so afraid. Nehemiah was sad. He, he couldn't fake it. He couldn't put on a facade. He was sad. He was afraid. But that didn't stop him from moving on and continuing on and working his plan. Verse 3, And Nehemiah said to the king, May the king live forever. That was a traditional greeting. Uh, that is uh, the politically correct greeting at this time. I can just imagine someone walking into my office. May the pastor live forever. <laughs> I am. I am. Nehemiah continued, Why should my face not be sad when the city, Jerusalem, the place of my father's tombs, where his ancestors were buried in Jerusalem, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah had been for four months waiting, praying, fasting, asking God to prepare Artaxerxes' mind and heart to receive his request. And now, after months of waiting on God to act in response to his asking, Nehemiah received his answer. Notice he said, in paraphrase form. And king, why shouldn't I be sad? Jerusalem was home to my ancestors. And now Jerusalem is in absolute ruins. The gates have been burned. And the wall itself has been broken down. King, don't I have a reason to be sad? It is a myth that leaders and successful people are never afraid and never apprehensive. That is a myth. Nehemiah was afraid. Nehemiah was apprehensive. He's been praying for this moment. The moment is here. And now he's terrified. And I admit, I have had those same emotions. Some 12 months after moving here, I had serious apprehensions about creating a DBA. A DBA is a doing business as name. A name, in our case, um, a more neutral name, minus denominational baggage, I'm not a denominational person per se, and I felt that uh, denominational names create resistance to unchurched, unregenerate people. And so I suggested, uh, let's have a different name. And it, it, was, it was nine months before we settled on a name. Um, I anticipated uh, some resistance since some people can, can get hung up on denominational names. And I remember a man that visited a service twice, visited twice on a Sunday morning, and then he asked to see me. And I said, sure, because I intend to visit people and see people who visit us. And uh, so he came to see me one night and in my office, and I intended to question him about the state of his soul. Uh, that was my concern, but we never got to that because we sat down and immediately he just ripped into me about changing our name. How could we do such a thing? He called me a complete fraud and some other not-so-nice things, and he was actually screaming at me. Now, you would be so proud. I didn't, I didn't lose it. I wasn't. I was cool. Mark Twain said, never argue with stupid people. They will drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. <laughs> so I didn't rebuttal him. I didn't engage in debate. I just responded that he was entitled to his opinion and that we would have to just agree to disagree. That didn't satisfy him. He was still angry, got up and stormed out. I had anticipated some of that. So there was some serious apprehension on my part in changing our name. But other than that particular critic, there was no resistance to that change. No one left this congregation because we had changed our name. The point is, people movers are often afraid and often apprehensive, but it doesn't stop them from doing what 
needs to be done. Different ma- difference makers are courageous enough to continue to put together their plan no matter what. Statement three, Nehemiah established a goal. Nehemiah established a goal. This is so essential. Verse four, then the king said to me, after Nehemiah has shared how Jerusalem is in ruins and all that has happened there, the king said to me, what do you request? Artaxerxes now understood the reason for Nehemiah's sadness. And although Artaxerxes is a non-believing Gentile, he's a non-Jewish person, he doesn't worship Yahweh, he's a polytheist, although he doesn't understand what is happening, God has impressed on his heart to assist Nehemiah. So he asked Nehemiah what he could do. Nehemiah said, notice, so I prayed to the God of heaven. This is interesting. Notice that before Nehemiah answered Artaxerxes, he spoke to God one more time. Nehemiah has just been asked the question, what do you wish? What can I do? How can I help? But before he answered and responded to that question, Nehemiah prayed probably a silent prayer and asked God to give him an answer for Artaxerxes. Once again, Nehemiah recognized his own limitations and his own helplessness in the situation, so he prayed. The question was, Nehemiah, what do you need? But before Nehemiah responded, he prayed and asked God for the appropriate answer. Verse 5, this is the answer. And I said to the king... If it pleases the king, and if your servant, meaning himself, has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah. Remember, Judah is the southern kingdom after the division, consisting of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, the southern kingdom, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, Jerusalem in Judah. And why did Nehemiah want to go to Judah and Jerusalem? Notice that I may rebuild it, that I may rebuild it. That was his goal. Nehemiah was specific in this instance. He had established a specific goal, and his goal was to rebuild Jerusalem, and in particular, he is asking for permission to go to Jerusalem so that he might rebuild this protective wall and gates around Jerusalem. Next time, we see in verse 6, that Artaxerxes responded and gave Nehemiah an affirmative answer. The answer was yes. Yes, you can go. The answer was affirmative in part because Nehemiah had been transparent before Artaxerxes. He hadn't hid behind a facade. His grief was apparent. He was sad. And so he was asked to explain the reason for his sadness. He did That meant something to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes then responded in a positive sense. Unlike Nehemiah, though, some people aren't transparent. Some people attempt to hide their humanness behind a facade. Charles Swindoll said, No matter how great you might become, it is important to let the cracks in your life show. Don't hide them, admit them. It bothers me to see someone whose pride and arrogance prevents him from being authentic and admitting his humanness. There are some people who want to seem to be above human. That is the perception these people want others to have of them. I once met a pastor that insisted on maintaining a certain quote-unquote professional image at all times. He actually boasted that his children, that were then adults at the time of our conversation, had never seen him when he did not have on a tie. Strange. It seemed that he would get up earlier than anyone else in the house and was completely dressed before he opened the door to go out of his bedroom so that his children never had seen him without a shirt and tie, meaning formal attire. That's a form of Phariseeism. That's a facade. It was all about his, his perceived image he wanted people to accept. 
Some people hide behind this phoniness in order to conceal their humanness. Some people are afraid if their humanness shows that people won't like them. People that hide behind a facade are insecure people. In one of our previous congregations, uh, after the service on Sunday morning, I had admitted in that sermon, using an illustration, I'd admitted to a personal problem of mine, a weakness or flaw, something I can't remember. And then afterwards, one of the older members approached me and admonished me because I did that. He said, don't do that again. I said, what? He said, don't let people see your flaws and failures. He was older than me. I was respectful. And I said, I'm so sorry, but I disagree. If I am never transparent and never admit to personal weaknesses and failures and even sin, then people will be tempted to put me on a pedestal. That's not where I want to be. I don't want to be on a pedestal. Because if I'm on a pedestal, then at some point, because I am thoroughly human, I'm going to fall off that pedestal. And if I fall off, then people in the congregation will become disillusioned and could walk away from the church and could even walk away from God. I said, no, I can't do that. I have to be me in the pulpit. I have to be real. I have to be authentic. I have to be transparent. Nehemiah was... He permitted Artaxerxes to see his sadness, and he revealed he was afraid. But Artaxerxes was receptive to Nehemiah's concerns about Jerusalem, and he actually wanted to help remedy that situation. So in verse 5, Nehemiah stated his objective, and in a more paraphrased form, his response was, Artaxerxes, please give me permission to journey to Jerusalem in Judah, to rebuild the walls and gates so that our people there are safe and secure and can reestablish themselves in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had an established, a firmly established and stated goal. He just shared that goal with Artaxerxes. Understood that no goal is defined as it ought to be unless and until it is put down on paper. Putting something on paper forces us to be more specific about that something. It forces us to be more disciplined in our thinking about that something. If we can't put it down on paper, then we probably don't actually know what it is. If we do know, then we can write it down. Research indicates that 67 people out of 100, that's more than two-thirds, 67 people out of 100 have tangible goals that theoretically could be put onto paper. But only three of those 67 persons actually do put those goals down onto paper. But get this, those three that have written down goals are able to achieve from 50 to 100 times more than those that only had goals in their heads. Goals that could be put down onto paper are reading the Bible through in 12 months. Memorizing a particular number of verses. Get this one. Attending church four consecutive Sundays, one month of attendance. Half our congregation has never, ever done that. Increasing the number of sales calls this month. Eliminating a certain amount of debt. Doing certain repairs and improvements around the house. Getting a 4.0 this semester. Saving a certain amount as retirement, losing a particular number of pounds, jogging or biking a certain number of miles. I mentioned my brother moving here. He was considering selling his treadmill because he has 10,000 miles on it. Those 10,000 miles were the result of successive goal setting. Personal goals come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. But unless we put our goals down on the paper where we can see them, we then forget about them and never do achieve them. Some people print goals, and I've done this, onto small cards, 3 by 5 cards, and then tape those cards to bathroom mirrors and refrigerator doors where we can't miss them. I believe each one of us should establish some smart Goals, where the word SMART, S-M-A-R-T, is used as an acronym. S means specific. 
specific. Our goals are to be specific and particular, not vague and ambiguous. An example, someone's goal is to become a better husband. That's noble, but that's too generic. What does it mean to be a better husband? We need more specifics. And gentlemen, if you need more specifics, ask your wife. She can give them to you. M. M means measurable. Measurable. If the goal can't be measured, then we would never be able to determine if we have reached that goal or not. A, A means achievable. Achievable. Goals are not someone's attempt to do the impossible. Goals should stretch us. Remember, we're like rubber bands. We're no good unless we're stretched. Goals should stretch us, but they should be achievable. That's the reason it is not one of my personal goals to become governor of Nevada. It's not, although I would be an improvement. I believe that. Actually, Charlie Brown would be an improvement. Anyway, (laughs) R means relevant, relevant. Goals need to relate to who we are and to what we are doing relevant to us. T means transferable, transferable. Now, don't misunderstand this. This letter T is optional. It's not all goals can be passed on to someone else. One of my immediate goals is to teach through another New Testament book after we finish Nehemiah. But that goal isn't transferable to most people in this room. Tony would get it because he teaches a Sunday school class And if you've never been, you ought to attend. It meets at nine. But that's not relatable to most people, so it's not necessarily transferable. Understand that Nehemiah not only had an established and stated goal, but we're going to see throughout this book that Nehemiah had a sustained determination to meet that goal. Another example of a smart goal and the determination to meet that goal was the mission God assigned His Son, Jesus, in sacrificing Himself on the cross. That mission was specific, measurable, achievable, and relevant, but not transferable, because no one else is qualified to sacrifice Himself for the sins of humanity because we're sinners ourselves. Understand, though, just as Nehemiah was determined to meet his goal, Jesus was just as determined to fulfill that goal and that mission God had assigned him. Let me illustrate that. Probably most of us have never heard of the servant songs. Servant songs. There are four of them mentioned in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The servant songs were messianic prophecies. Prophecies are predictions, predictions about something in the future. And messianic prophecies were predictions, precise predictive statements from the Old Testament that were then fulfilled in Jesus as the promised Messiah centuries after in the New Testament. The four servant songs prophesied and predicted that Messiah, Jesus, would be a servant. And those four servant songs are found in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, the messianic, particular messianic prophetical statement from the third servant song was made in Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. I want us to see that. In this text, Isaiah describes how the messianic Jesus would suffer as a servant. This is a text that comments on his futuristic suffering. Remember, this prophetical statement was made, recorded, more than seven centuries before Jesus' birth. Verse 6. This is all related to Jesus as the Messiah. I gave my back to those who struck me. That phrase describes the Roman scourging Jesus was subjected to. According to custom, the Romans would scourge a condemned criminal before he was actually put to death. The Roman scourge, also called the flagrim or flagellum, was a short whip consisting of two or three leather thongs or lashes, 12, 15 inches in length. Those lashes or thongs were connected to a wooden handle the legionnaire would hold in using that scourge. 
Those leather thongs were knotted with a number of small pieces of metal, usually zinc and iron. Also, sometimes pieces of bone were tied to it at different intervals. And sometimes the soldiers would also attach a sharp metal hook at the end of each thong and named the whip scorpion. Imagine. The Romans could scourge a prisoner an undetermined number of times. Now, Jewish law said that no man could be scourged more than 39 times. The legionnaires weren't Jewish, had no respect for the Mosaic law. So the legionnaires could, you know, scourge a man an undetermined number of times. There was no legal limit to the scourging, and that scourging formed deep lacerations, torn flesh ripped in shreds across the back and sides of a man, exposed muscles and excessive bleeding, would leave the victim half dead. And that's what Jesus endured. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me, notice, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. Now Mel Gibson's blockbuster movie, and if you haven't seen it, you should, The Passion of the Christ. As I sat through that in the theater, I noticed Mel missed that critical detail. I should have been a consultant on that film set because Jesus had a beard. He had a beard and in his pre-crucifixion torture the Roman soldiers grabbed and tugged at his facial hair until that beard was literally ripped off his face. I have had a full beard and I have a full, full beard multiple times and just imagining that particular torture is horrific. Jesus endured that. Then he said, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Those soldiers gathered around him, mocked him, and then spit in his face. Spitting was a sign of gross disrespect toward someone. But notice, Jesus accepted that spittle. He didn't even turn his head. He fully accepted the abuse from those men. Verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, notice, I have set my face like a flint. Flint is a hard, tough stone. It is a form of microcrystalline quartz that geologists call chert. And for centuries, indigenous people groups in different societies and countries have used flint to create tips to arrows. Arrowheads were often made from flint. Flint is used in scripture in a figurative sense to describe hardness and toughness. It is used to describe the firmness of a horse's hoof, used to describe the toughness of an almost impossible task. And flint is used in scripture to describe inflexible determination. Determination. And so this phrase, where Messiah said he would set his face like a flint, describes the complete resolve and absolute determination the messianic Jesus would have in fulfilling the goal and specific mission God had assigned to him. Even though that goal meant intense, horrific torture, he was determined to meet that goal. The messianic prophetical statement from the third servant song was fulfilled in numerous gospel text but notice Luke 9 verse 51 now it came to pass when the time had come for him Jesus to be received up to be meaning to be crucified that he Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem that word steadfastly means to turn resolutely in a certain direction to turn resolutely in a certain direction and that's what Jesus did. He had been going in all these different directions. And now it's nearing the time of his death. And from this point on in Luke's gospel, Jesus was determined and resolved to go in a different direction, to go to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. He was resolved to endure the cross. That was his assigned goal. That was his mission. And he wouldn't be detoured. No one, and not even Satan himself, could stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission on the cross. And we should be so grateful. 
I'm sure I've shared this before, but I have no idea when. On a commuter flight from Portland, Maine to Boston, Henry Dempsey, the pilot of that commuter flight, heard an unusual noise near the rear of the small aircraft. He turned the controls over to his co-pilot and went back to investigate. As he reached the tail section, the plane hit an air pocket and Dempsey was tossed against the rear door. He immediately discovered the source of that mysterious noise. The rear door had not been properly latched prior to takeoff. And the force of his body hitting the door caused it to come open. And as a result, he was instantly sucked out of the jet. The co-pilot, seeing the red light that indicated an open door, radioed the nearest airport, requesting permission to make an emergency landing. He reported that apparently the pilot had fallen out of the plane and he requested a helicopter search of that area of the ocean. After the plane landed, Henry Dempsey was actually found holding on to the outdoor ladder of that aircraft. Somehow, in being sucked out of the plane, he caught the ladder, held on as the plane flew 200 miles per hour at an altitude of 4,000 feet, and then as it landed, he managed to keep his head from dragging on the runway, which was just 12 inches away. This man had an unanticipated, unexpected, immediate, and urgent goal imposed on him, and that goal was to survive. And he did. Now get this. It is reported that Henry Dempsey had held on so tight that it took airport personnel almost 10 minutes to pry his fingers away from that ladder. That gives additional meaning to the word determination. If we have an established goal, a goal God gave us, a goal God approves of, a goal that God has endorsed and orchestrated, if we have an established and stated goal, no matter what that goal might be, then we should be like Henry Dempsey and hang on to that goal and hang on through thick and thin, through troubles, good times, bad times, hang on and hang on and hang on and hang on and don't let go until that goal is met. That's what Nehemiah does, as we're going to see. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, um, I thank you for this amazing man and his example to us. I really pray we'll learn from him. Help us to be more Nehemiah-like. Help us to establish goals. Not selfish goals, not self-centered goals, but goals that you want for us. And I pray, God, that we'll write those goals down. We'll visit them often. We will determine to meet them. So, God, I just commit this sermon to you. I have no idea of anyone's heart. I don't know what their needs are. I don't know what their hurts are, their problems are. But you do. And I pray, dear God, that you'll use this message to make a difference in each one of them today. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.